Somewhere in the middle of the 6th century BC, you wake up at dawn as an Olmec villager. You just woke up, but you're still tired from the previous day's work. Your muscles ache from farming, and sleeping on a reed mat is not as comfortable as it used to be. You shuffle around your waddle and daub house, noting some repairs to the clay exterior that needs a dressing soon. It's already warm and damp in the early morning light. You could tell it's going to be a hot one. You step outside of your humble structure and look towards Leventa, the city you live outside of. Its royal complex is punctuated by a giant pyramid, but it is completely off limits to you. Though you may be in the majority, you are still considered the lowest of the low, a farmer, and the royal complex is the domain of the ruler, elite citizens, and the priestly class. Later this week, however, there will be some religious drama being acted out in the commoner part of town on one of its many stages, so maybe you'll take in a show. You're hungry. Your stomach sounds like a snarling jaguar. You proceed to the village storehouse in hopes of maybe finding something to hold you over until you can check your traps later. Your teeth are worn down and ache. You're not old, but 30 years of eating stone ground corn that seems to always have bits of stone grit in it has reduced your teeth to nubs. You always have corn. It's all anyone grows. You're thankful you have food, but deep inside, you're kind of tired of corn. The traps may have a turtle or two, and that's always good eats, and maybe you'll find some ripe fruit later and be able to give the corn buffet a break for the day. You see your neighbor in the distance with his back towards you and briefly think of calling out a good morning to him, but he's an artisan, and years of chiseling stone tools across stone monuments has left him with arthritic hands and little, if any, hearing. At least you're not him. Your life is simple and demanding, but waking up to a majestic pyramid effortlessly arising in the beautiful colors of pre-dawn Mesoamerica is pretty inspiring. The ambient sounds of the living jungle all around you set a rhythm and tone for the day. You arch your back and give yourself a satisfying stretch. All right, enough loafing. It's time to begin your work and get this day moving. You reverently offer a quick prayer to the maize god before leaving for your field, asking that he bless your work and give you an abundant harvest. You don't know it, but you are part of the most important culture that will ever exist in Mesoamerica. The mother culture. The Olmecs. It is important to note from the very start that the Olmecs, or what I have come to know as the we don't know Mechs, have a lot of gaps in our knowledge of their history and culture for three big reasons. One, the lack of writing for the majority of their civilization. Two, the soil in their region is highly acidic and dissolves bones, earthworks, and many of the organic-based tools and weapons they may have used. And three, the looting and pillaging by subsequent peoples over a couple of millennia has left little to excavate. So, if you can imagine a culture not writing things down, and nature conspiring to dissolve away their everyday use items, and what little remains is pillaged and pilfered away by later cultures, you can begin to grasp the smallness of our understanding of this once great people. The Olmecs were the mother culture in Mesoamerica, and they date from approximately 1600 BC to 400 BC. From 400 BC to 600 AD is known as the Epi-Olmec period, and is basically Olmec 2.0, meaning they were more technologically and culturally advanced than their predecessors, though they were essentially the same people. I don't think it's likely the Olmec and the Epi-Olmec really saw themselves differently from one another, even though the Epi didn't have the impressive monuments of antiquity. However, 
these people did establish the foundations for all future Mesoamerican cultures and technologies. Think of this time period as the end of Rome and the rise of Byzantium, where the Byzantines considered themselves Romans in one continuous line of peoples. I'm sure Mike Duncan and Patrick Wyman's heads just exploded when I said that, but it's how I relate to the two facets of this culture in my own head. Anyway, 1600 BC places them earlier than the Maya and well before the Aztecs, two of the more famous Mesoamerican cultures that we will discuss in later podcasts. Around the world in 1600 BC, in Egypt, the Great Pyramid had stood for almost a millennium, and the Egyptians were in the middle of their 15th dynasty with the Hyksos at the helm. The mask of Agamemnon was created in Greece during their Bronze Age. The Romans were T-850 years away from their humble beginnings. Stonehenge would not be built for another 200 years. The Shang Dynasty in China was just getting underway, and the Indus civilization was collapsing. It was quite a long time ago, and there was a lot going on. The name Olmec means rubber people, as they were known for trading in rubber goods with other cultures, and their land was known as the Olmen, land of rubber. Now, they didn't call themselves Olmec. It was a name ascribed by the Aztecs much later in time, but we have no written records of what they called themselves, at least none that have been deciphered, so the name Olmec just kind of stuck. These rubber people did not have the technology of vulcanization, which is a process where rubber, sulfur, and other chemicals are heated to 140 to 160 degrees Celsius. This results in crosslinks with long rubber molecules, which increases tensile strength, elasticity, and hardness. So if that is the case, how did the Olmec process latex into durable rubber? Back to my phrase, we don't know mechs. But some have theorized that the combination of latex from rubber trees treated with ground-up native foliage and morning glory extract created the first rubber material. It kind of sounds made up, but let's just move on. The Olmec would have used this new product for the heavy balls used in their ball courts for games designed as religious ritual or formal entertainment. How heavy, you ask? Well, these balls would have been nearly 10 pounds of solid rubber with no padding or safety gears for the player. The formal game would have athletes hit these heavy rubber balls with only their hips, and the object was basically hip blast these balls through a stone ring hung several feet in the air. It's safe to assume that it was exceptionally difficult to do, and given the weight of these early balls, it could be quite painful to play and could be lethal, especially if you take a shot to the head. One could immediately see how soccer likely developed as the informal game with a lighter ball modified rules like using the feet instead of the hips to advance the ball, and placing the goals on the ground for all the commoners to play. I don't know that it worked precisely that way, and, well, neither do you, but it does seem likely. What is clear is that this game, on these courts, came to represent religious significance and symbolism of the underworld in later Mesoamerican cultures, so we can presume something similar was happening with the Olmecs. Since the Olmecs were precursors to the later Mesoamerican cultures, it is easy to see how they laid the groundwork in astronomy, artwork, religion, and cultural norms. They were like the Windows 95 of the Mesoamerican world. Yes, they had the beginnings of what we appreciate now in our modern operating systems, but like Windows 95, the Olmecs suddenly and unexpectedly shut down somewhere in the 4th century BC. 
Bad analogies aside, the Olmec did not build their civilization with conquest, but through trade networks and were generally a peaceful people that never displayed violence or war in their artwork or buildings. Additionally, there have been no defensive fortifications or military structures found in any of their cities. That's not to say that they didn't have a military, though. Likely, the military fighting was done by the elite citizenry, who had the money for weapons, the leisure time to learn to expertly wield them, and the motivation to keep power. This may have been the precursor to the later Mesoamerican people's distinction of a warrior class. Anyway, remnants of obsidian-tipped spears, darts, and clubs embedded with sharpened obsidian have been found at Olmec sites, and there is evidence to suggest that they were the technologically superior weapons of the time. Surrounding cultures are believed to only have sharpened, fire-hardened spears at their disposal, which were pretty useless. Maybe the Olmec were peaceful because they didn't have to fight. I mean, after all, if you only have essentially a broomstick to fight with, you're not likely to act up on someone swinging sharp obsidian blades at you. The Olmec traded with many cultures from Central America to the Valley of Mexico and offered masks, figurines, rubber, and other various items. In return, they would get obsidian blades, unfinished serpentine stone, jadeite, which is a high-quality form of jade referred to as imperial jade today, salt, cacao, colorful plumage, crocodile skins, seashells, stingray spines, and various other items, including iron ore for mirrors. Let's talk a minute about those mirrors. These mirrors, unearthed from Olmec sites, were highly polished on one side and left rough on the other. They were typically concave in shape, and smaller versions were used as personal adornment. Larger versions had circular, concave lenses and worked like parabolic reflectors that intensify reflected sunlight. These versions of the mirrors would get so hot they would smoke and could start fires. The later Aztecs even had a god named Smoking Mirror, or Tezcatlipoca. These larger mirrors must have been used for religious ceremonies, though we don't really know. If these types of mirrors sound familiar, it's probably because you're a good history student and have read about Archimedes' heat ray. You will also notice that the Olmec mastered this principle about a thousand years before Archimedes was even born. Let's beat those drums in honor of the Olmecs. Hi everyone, just real quick, there is a companion website for this podcast for you to follow along with as you listen. The site has pictures and descriptions of many of the items we talk about here. It's fun and engaging, and if you are so inclined, you can donate to my cause and help keep this podcast alive. The website is jessacosta one dot com forward slash mesoplus, M-E-S-O-P-L-U-S. Yeah, it's a mouthful, but type it in once and bookmark the page. Updates will happen concurrent with all new episodes. Thank you so much for listening. The Olmec's strong trade network is what drove the transmission of their culture to other civilizations, and the traditional Olmec became extremely influential until their collapse in 300 BC. The pottery of the Olmecs was advanced and widely dispersed across Mesoamerica. We know this because many samples of Olmec pottery 
have been found at multiple sites in the region during the same time period. This is a condition archaeologists refer to as horizons. And one good horizon marker is the prevalence of rocker stamp jars colored with a red pigment called cinnabar. The term rocker stamp refers to a process where you impress a continuous design on wet clay pottery with an implement rocked at successive points. The Olmec used sticks or reeds for this purpose and created globular-shaped pottery called tecomate. Just think of a globe with the North Pole sliced off and you can visualize the piece. These ceramics were found throughout the region during the Middle Formative Period, which ranged from approximately 800 BC to 400 BC and preceded the collapse of Levanta. During these times, sites were set up along mountain passages and well-traveled routes as possible trading stations, which also helped facilitate the spread of these goods. With the 4th century BC came the abandonment and burning of Leventa, as proven by charcoal layers atop the excavated city. The burning could have been an intentional act of war, a ritual burning as the people left the city, or some other event. The fact is, we just don't know. In any event, this ended the traditional Olmec period and ushered in the Epi-Olmec, who did not enjoy as robust of a trade network as their predecessors once did due to the unexplained breakdown of said networks. The three most important cities also reflect the three major time segments in Olmec history. The first we'll start with is San Lorenzo, from 1600 BC to 900 BC. Located approximately 40 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, the area provides fertile river floodplains that provided food for the Olmec people. To be fair, some of these cultures were called pre-Olmec, and they included the Ojochi, Bajio, and Chicharas, with the last culture showing signs of overlap with, or a developing into, what would be called the Olmec culture. The site is remarkable for the expertly carved stone sculptures, including the well-known basalt heads, that we will talk about later. The next most important city and the next stopping point on our timeline is Leventa from 900 BC to 400 BC. After the decline and abandonment of San Lorenzo, the new center of Olmec civilization arose in Leventa. At the time, it was the greatest city in Mesoamerica and home to roughly 18,000 people. Some of the finds at Levento were three large mosaics consisting of 500 blocks each of polished serpentine rock and assembled in the image of the Olmec dragon or earth monster. They are absolutely beautiful, but shockingly, were never meant to be seen. As soon as they were put in place, they were covered with clay and left buried. Also, five tombs were discovered in a sandstone sarcophagus in what seems to be a funerary complex. The mosaics and funerary site were dubbed Complex A. There was a public gathering site filled with large flat rocks that were used as stages for ritual drama and public events. The site measures 440 yards by 110 yards, which comes to roughly 436,000 square feet or approximately eight football fields. Yes, I'm an American. We measure large things in terms of football fields. This site was dubbed Complex B. Leventa also had a great pyramid that stood nearly 35 meters high, that's 115 feet, and contained 100,000 cubic meters of earth fill. Need a mountain in the middle of your city? Call these guys, they'll build you one. The pyramid was rectangular in shape and had stairways on each side. 
It has never been excavated, so not much more is known. Archaeologists have dubbed this complex C. Laventa also yielded more enormous carved basalt heads, along with some other notables. Monument 19, which is the earliest known depictions of the feathered serpent in all of Mesoamerica and is carved into basalt, was also uncovered. And finally, altars 4 and 5 that depict were jaguars and cave emergents carved in stone on an altar. It looks like an ancient pop up book of someone climbing out of a cave. While Levento was the economic powerhouse and probably the pinnacle of Olmec civilization, Trace Sapotes is no slouch either. It's our third and final city, coming in at 400 BC to 600 AD. On the banks of the Huayapan River, nestled near the Tuxtla mountain range, is the third most important Olmec city called Trace Sapotes. Though, to be precise, we are entering the epi-Olmec era, leaving the Olmecs behind, though the Olmecs never really knew that distinction. Anyway, my mastery of the language means I know that Trace Zapotes translates to three Zapotes. A Zapote is a fruit commonly called Sapodia, and it looks like a kiwi and a cantaloupe had a baby. On the outside, a rough skin that easily peels away, and on the inside, the fruit is orange to amber in color, and reported to be quite sweet, with a butternut squash fragrance. To me, that sounds a lot like a cantaloupe. I have never seen one, let alone eaten one, but they sound tasty, so let's get three of them and name our city after it, shall we? One could only imagine that these fruit-bearing trees were plentiful in the area, and that's what gave the city its name. Trace Sapotes gives us a host of artifacts, including more basalt carved heads and remarkable pottery that looks similar to South American stirrup vessels. A mysterious wheeled stone carving of a jaguar was found at Trace Sapotes, and subsequently at later Mayan sites. This proves that the people knew about the wheel in pre-Columbian times. Stele C, which we talked about earlier, it's the two-sided monument that has a ruler on one side and the Epi-Olmec script on the other, as well as many mounds that likely had elite residents built on them, administrative buildings and temples were all found. Now, mound building is a common theme in the ancient Americas and is used to denote significance. The bigger the mound, the more important you were. There is one less important find at Tres Zapotes that I want to touch upon, and that is the stone sculpture of a man who looks, perhaps, Asian? He has almond-shaped eyes, a beard, and a mustache. Keep in mind that people in this region can barely grow any facial hair at all. And he's also sporting what seems to be a turban-like head covering. Archaeologists don't know what to make of this, but this person was definitely not from around here. By 600 AD, the Epi-Olmec fizzled out, and though there would be still be lingering inhabitants for some time, the era of the Olmec had run out. Now that we have waded into this pool of controversy with the sculpture of the Asian man, let's get into a couple other controversial aspects of the Olmec culture. The basalt heads. Among the most famous discoveries by archaeologists are the basalt heads found at San Lorenzo, Laventa, and Tres Zapotes, triangulated in between the modern-day cities of Puebla and Tabasco in Mexico. The heads range in weight from a wispy 6 tons to a more imposing weight of nearly 50 tons. And the stone wasn't just laying around. The Olmec had to trek 100 miles into the Veracruz Mountains to quarry and transport the stone back to the cities where they could be worked and finished. 
The name basalt comes from the Latin basaltes, meaning hard stone, and indeed basalt rivals the hardness of granite with a Mohs hardness rating of 6, where granite is closer to 7. My first thought was, oh, similar to granite, well, that's what Egyptians quarried and built with, so nothing too special about that. I could not have been more wrong. <laughs> While the Egyptians did quarry granite, they had the benefit of metal tools, such as copper or iron, but the Olmecs had no metal tools to work with whatsoever and had to make do with primarily stone tools, though we do not know exactly what kind. One can imagine the time, patience, and expertise it took to pound and peck away at the enormous stone visages and the mounting frustration as your stone chisels quickly wear out against 50 tons of basalt. Due to the distinctive features of the now famous basalt heads, the Olmec were confused or sometimes intentionally misrepresented as African in origin, and those stone carvings were used as evidence for contact with the African continent, or in more extreme cases, African colonization of America. Anyway, while there is no silver bullet to put down this theory that there was African contact, the evidence that we have so far, and the probability of oceanic travels by the Olmec or the sub-Saharan Africans during this time are not substantiated. Also, the people who today live in the regions the Olmec once occupied look very similar to the statues, so the African origins argument is just reduced to what seems to be confirmation biased. Well, that's all well and fine, but what did the Olmecs say? Did they write about African contact? Surely this would have been amazing news, right? The short answer is no, because the Olmec did not have a written script at this time, and if a people from another land came and offered it to them, my guess is they would have instantly recognized the value of writing and would have adopted it or some form of it. However, this is another area where popular though unsubstantiated theories have arisen that the Olmec script was a West African dialect. Let me just say, if we knew the language, we could easily translate the hieroglyphs and neither of those conditions exist. The Olmec had a hieroglyphic writing system that morphed into a syllabic writing system with the later Epi-Olmec. By all respectable accounts, it was the Olmec people that introduced writing to Mesoamerica as a logosyllabic script. A logosyllabic script combines logographic writing, which is letters, symbols, or signs that represent a word, similar to Chinese writing, and syllabic writing that uses consonants and vowels to create words as we do with English. As it is yet to be deciphered, there is not much to say about it. What we know from other cultures is that writing usually develops and initially records business transactions, something along the lines of, I sold three chickens to Joe for $3 on Monday, May 1st. So at least we're spared that anticlimactic level of writing. But this accounting style of writing happens long before the words are crafted into poetry and such. So early uses of Olmec writing were likely in this vein. Given the Olmec's developed sense of refinement in pottery and stone carving, it does not take much to imagine that some Olmecs likely became authors, poets, and songwriters. Steely C., discovered at Tres Zapotes by Matthew Sterling in 1939, gives us our first glimpse of Olmec text. Thanks to the similarity to the Maya long count, the date inscribed on the monument can be translated as September 2nd, 32 BC. The front of the stele features a ruler on a throne with both human and jaguar features and on the back, there is some hieroglyphic text. Again, we have no idea what it says, so for now, we can only guess at its meaning. 
However, these half-man, half-jaguar beings are significant symbolism. These half-man, half-jaguar beings were dubbed were-jaguars by archaeologists. Um, they got the naming convention from the movie A Werewolf in London and just went from werewolf to were-jaguar. So, very creative. So were-jaguars, as they are known, are a theme in Olmec religion, and the figurines and carvings are ubiquitous. There are carved scenes of people copulating with jaguars, which result in were-jaguar babies. We really can't make this up. And these were-jaguar babies seem to be offered in a religious context. There are adult were-jaguars that seem to depict various states of transformation between human and jaguar as well. Later archaeologists came to the conclusion that these were-jaguars may be a depiction of shamanic trance and may have to do with spiritual awakening. Cave emergence seems to be significant to the Olmec as well. The theming of Olmec altars show carvings of people emerging from caves and the presence of were-jaguars. So I could see the cave emergence as being part of a coming out of the darkness and into the light motif, with the were-jaguars perhaps representing the process of the higher self conquering the lower self, with the jaguar as the former and the human as the latter. Both would make sense as something to carve on an altar as a reminder of what one is trying to achieve with the given religious ceremony, but I have not read any of this anywhere. It just happens to be my opinion. Another stone altar discovered at San Lorenzo depicts two dwarfish beings that look exactly alike, holding the altar above their heads. The symbolism of dwarves and twins were important to the Olmec, Mesoamericans, and Native Americans alike. Dwarves in Native American cultures are revered as it is believed that they were touched by God, while twins in Native American cultures are tied to creation stories. Again, we don't know for certain, but it seems plausible that similar ideas were held by the Olmec and could have served as a precursor to Mayan creation stories. The Olmec pantheon consists of a handful of gods, some of whom may be aspects of each other. The Olmecs had a very clear sense of what a god should look like. They all have downturned mouths, almond-shaped eyes with round pupils and a cleft head. There may be other trappings as well that further define the god, but those three features are almost always present. Of the gods that we know of, the earth, bird, and fish gods, taken together, represent the Olmec physical universe as earth, sky, and underworld. Let's walk through the various gods and their symbolisms. The Feathered Serpent. Now this one is my favorite, and it's seen throughout all Mesoamerican cultures and as the name suggests, he is depicted as a snake with the plumage of a bird. You may be familiar with the Mayan god Kukulkan or the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl. Well, the feathered serpent is their precursor. He could be representative of wind, language, sky, learning, or something similar, as it was for the Mayans or the Aztec. But we don't know what the meaning was for the Olmec. We can say that the feathered serpent was likely a minor god for the Olmec, as there are few depictions or carvings. The Olmec Dragon or Earth Monster Featured in offerings and burial tombs, the dragon is depicted with flaming eyes, a split tongue, and fangs. Well, just like you would expect a dragon to look, I suppose. It represents earth, agriculture, and fire, and was a favorite of the elite ruling class. 
the bird monster. Depicted as a bird with reptilian features, the bird monster represents the skies, sun, rulership, and agriculture. He was another favorite of the ruling class. Laventa in particular revered this god, and there are multiple carvings of him at the city and on altars dedicated to the bird monster. Shark or fish monster. Depicted with lots of teeth, an overbite, split fins, and an X marking on its body, the shark monster is representative of the underworld. We know the X markings are significant in Olmec art, but we have yet to solve for X, so we do not presently understand what it means. The Maze God. Depicted as a human-like figure with a stalk of corn growing out of his head, the Maze God was dedicated to the production of corn. This god is often ascribed to the ruling class, possibly as a reminder that they are responsible for bountiful crops for the populace. Associated with the water god and were jaguars, we can easily assume that the maize god was important to the Olmecs. The water god. Depicted as a chubby dwarf or infant with a snarling face, similar to a were jaguar, the water god is featured frequently in Olmec art and ruled over all bodies of water and water in general. Also, he may have been the precursor to the Aztec god, Tlaloc. The Banded Eye God. Always appearing in profile and with an almond-shaped eye, with a stripe or band passing behind it, we don't really know what this god represented. For imagery's sake, the Eye of Horus is similar in appearance. Wear Jaguars, Rain Spirits. Depicted as human figures with feline features, the Wear Jaguar may be a visualization of a shamanic trance state. If it is a baby, it is usually limp and looks possibly dead. This may not actually be a god so much as a supernatural entity. With the jaguar being an influential and meaningful image to the Mesoamerican people, we can only be sure that they were important in some regard. The rain spirit aspect is only differentiated by the physical appearance of a headdress or headband. It's unclear if the Ware Jaguar and the Rain Spirit are one and the same or two distinct entities. As is the case with much of the Olmec, our limited understanding of these gods and how they worked in the Olmec civilization leaves us wondering about the complexities and intricacies of their theology, how it impacted the believers, and the machinations of their religion. Now I think we have reached a spot where we can safely say that we understand the Olmec about as much as we actually can, given the information that's out there. Yes, we could probably delve a little further into their artwork, their mask making, their pottery, um, but really it's just listing artifacts and dates of when they were created, and it probably doesn't give you much more insight onto the culture. We could talk about the people a little bit. Um, they mostly ate corn. Uh, they also ate, you know, uh, as we said before, they also ate, you know, turtles and shellfish and other fish. Um, they lived in wattle and daub houses, we believe. Um, and a wattle and daub house is um, basically a house um, built with vertical beams that have horizontal sticks or reeds woven in between those beams. And then clay or mud smeared over the outside and hardened to kind of weatherproof it. Uh, but again that's kind of where we stop because we don't really know. Uh, we could probably make a drinking game out of all the times that I said we don't know. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, but we really wouldn't learn much more about the Olmec. What we can say with clarity is that by 600 AD, what was once the Olmec had declined and given way to the next civilization, 
that would build upon the Olmec achievements and far surpass their predecessors, with outstanding achievements in astronomy and mathematics that led to engineering marvels and a rich, powerful nation that maybe most importantly invented chocolate, the Maya are the subject of our next podcast. Though the Olmec work in astronomy and calendrics can be seen as seminal work for later civilizations, the Mayan mastery takes it to a whole new level. The Maya begin their rise concurrent with the decline of Tres Zapotes, with much better records and ruins available than what the Olmec could offer. They also have some catchy names like Sunshield, Moon Jaguar, and Sky Rain. So join me next time on Mesoamericana Plus as we delve into the exciting culture of the Maya.